Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and along with me, the archivist of all time, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Jokic, creator of our show. Christopher, you and I have interviewed a lot of different people. And of course, in our archives, we found and featured so many interviews with so many legends. The Beatles, The Stones, U2, The Eagles, George Michael, Elton John, Queen, Rush, Rod Stewart, Peter Frampton, Taylor Swift, Prince, Tom Petty, Bowie, Alanis, Zeppelin, so many others. But you know what one group we haven't spent a lot of time on, only a very short amount of time, and that's the Beach Boys. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Starland Vocal Band. The Starland no. Vocal Band. <laughs> we're going to straighten that Beach Boys situation out today with a couple of mid-70s interviews with Mike Love and Dennis Wilson. What else we got coming up, Tom? Well, we have a late 60s interview with the great Eric Clapton. I think it's from 1969. He talks about so many things. The pressure he faces, the dissolution of Cream Rock's first supergroup, and he also addresses the Paul is Dead rumors. This is from when those rumors were really hot. And you may be surprised at what Eric Clapton, of all people, has to say about those rumors. Plus, we have a fantastic interview with Dave Stewart of Eurythmics as he talks about his very close continuing relationship with Annie Lennox and what happened the first time Aretha Franklin heard Annie Lennox sing. Great show ahead. Let's start with the Beach Boys. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her head from 1967, a masterpiece, The Beach Boys and Good Vibrations. Tom, The Beach Boys have endured through changes in musical taste, fracturing of the family of the core of the band, and the inevitable passing of key members of a group that's been in business for over 60 years. But the institution known as The Beach Boys represents a revered American band. From that first string of hits, starting with Surfing USA in 1963, including the number ones I Get Around and Help Me, Rhonda, to the creative peak in 1967 with what you call their masterpiece, Good Vibrations. Mm -hmm. They've gone from cool to kitsch and back to cool so many times I can't even count. The sales diminished, as they inevitably will, but they had a creative resurgence in the early 70s with Surf's Up and Holland, albums that featured a more balanced creative contribution and some of the richest compositions musically and lyrically of their career. And to the surprise of many, including the band, they hit another high-water mark with Endless Summer, a greatest hits album that came out in 1974. Right. In these two interviews with lead singer Mike Love and the late drummer Dennis Wilson, the topic is their new album at the time, 15 Big Ones, as in Years of Existence, this being 1976, and the number of songs on the album, mostly of oldies that was widely panned. <laughs> Give it a listen. <laughs> Dennis, the one brother who actually had a Beach Boy lifestyle, sounds far more animated talking about his solo career than the group's music. And it's hard to picture the tragedy that his life became in the early 80s when he died by drowning in Marina del Rey. Boy. We begin with Wilson Brothers' cousin, Mike Love, who co-wrote many of the band's signature hits like California Girls, Wouldn't It Be Nice, and Help Me Rhonda, among many others. It's worth noting, though, that in the 1990s, Mike Love had to sue for the writing credits on 35 songs. Wow. He won the suit. Boy, mm -hmm. boy, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, he starts by talking about Brian Wilson's involvement on their new album. Yes, right. <laughs> Brian Wilson, my cousin Brian Wilson, yes. Of course. <laughs> he, that's right, uh, Daryl. He was uh, 
the actual producer of the 15 Big Ones album. And mm -hmm. the thing is, for the last several years, Brian hasn't really fully uh, engaged in production, total production of an album. He's maybe produced two or three tunes, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the album. But in the 15 Big Ones, he really masterminded the whole thing. He went in every day, about five days a week at least, for two months uh, into the studio, and we did, we must have done 40 songs or 30 songs. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have about, uh, Brian has 12 songs all set to go for our next album. It's great that Brian got involved in this project, whether it was successful or not. That's good to know. Well, time for a little ancient history. That is the source of the band's name. Image was automatic because it was the lifestyle we lived. In, in fact, we still, out of the five original Beach Boys, four out of those five live right on the ocean. So uh, we used to uh, live right near nearby the uh, Pacific Ocean there in Southern California when we were going to school, you know, and uh, we came up with the idea of cutting a record about surfing, and so it was all very natural to be called the Beach Boys, And but the actual name was given to us by a man named Russ Regan, who is head now of, I think, uh, some re big record company. But anyway, uh, that was it. That, that was the story. Wow, it's actually nice to hear Mike Love sounding friendly and conversational for a change. I've interviewed Mike... And he can be rather, um, <laughs> hmm, strong in his opinions, especially when I talked about uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We will play that uh, interview one of these days uh, with uh, myself and Mike Love from the mid-90s. Hmm, I want to hear that one for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I interviewed Carl Wilson, and um, he was um, almost withdrawn. I mean, he, he was forthcoming and it was an interview in the sense that he answered all of my questions and he was congenial but there was a kind of a, a dark side to his personality that, that was in full evidence well you know we have that interview in fact we played that uh interview on episode six of famous lost words so i would invite anybody to join us and listen to that but the funny thing is is i found carl to be excellent and very thoughtful and kind of sensitive and that really surprised me Mm -hmm. um, at the at the time when we played it, that was one of our you know earliest shows. Like I said, episode six. So yes, I can see that he was, and I also saw the video of you talking to him. So I could see that he was. Uh, what do you call it? Removed a little bit. Yeah, with, removed. Yeah, withdrawn a little bit. Mm -hmm. But he was also very informative, and and you could tell he kind of deeply cared. And I believe that's the one in which he's talking about Dr. Eugene Landy, who had a horrible effect on yes. the life of Brian Wilson. And so Carl speaking up at that time when it wasn't well known is very interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. Mike talks about recording oldies for the new album. Brian and I were just sitting around the house saying, oh, let's see, we were cutting a well, bunch of oldies for uh, ostensibly an oldies project, oldies album or something, which uh, we combined, as you find on the 15 Big Ones mm -hmm. album, old and new. But... We just went out and we started cutting uh, a lot of songs. And so uh, we recorded maybe about 25 of them. And uh, rock and roll music, just it, it just seemed like such a great song because the implication, the title itself, and uh, the fact that we've always been influenced by Chuck Berry. In fact, Surfing USA was uh, patterned after Sweet Little Sixteen. So Brian had this arrangement idea and says, Oh, we've got to do rock and roll music. I said, Oh, fantastic. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Dance with me. The Beach Boys from 1976 and rock and roll music. Okay, 
I actually don't mind that version, even if it doesn't stand up to the rest of the Beach Boys music in the grand scheme of things. I just know that I was 14 when it came out, and it sounded great coming out of the radio. And it's quite possible at that age that I wasn't even familiar with the Chuck Berry original. Don't hurt me, Christopher. Don't hurt me. I know you're 3,000 miles away, but please do not lash out. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm not such a hardliner about matters like this. Okay. I mean, the Beach Boys have a fantastic vocal blend, and it was yeah. in full evidence uh, in, in that particular uh cover they did yeah for sure um dennis begins by talking about um, what their stage setup was like and the additional musicians in the group at the time the beach boys have had uh well hell you had what 18 people on stage close to that hmm. we have a horn section with us and a uh percussion and keyboards billy hinchy billy hinchy elmo play. peeler ron altbach and carly munoz and brian wilson so yeah. there's five Keyboards, but uh, one keyboard could be violins, the string ensemble. Mm -hmm. Another is the Moog and the clavinet. Another one is a a, a new uh, type of electric piano, and then of course the grand piano. Right. You know, they move about. Right, and you know, by the mid seventies, Christopher, the Beach Boys were a touring juggernaut, drawing thousands of fans as they played. You know, what's known as sheds or those big amphitheaters throughout the summer, and it was a perfect match, right? A nice uh, summer evening, and there are the Beach Boys just honking out the hits. And by then, they'd had at least, what, 20 mm -hmm. hits, maybe 25. And you would just go and have a riot at their concerts. It was a massive time for them, even though maybe their hit-making days were actually fairly far behind them. But their touring days, man, it was huge. It really yeah. did dominate um, the 70s summer lineups. I saw one of those shows, and it was just pure fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before or not. You can stop me or just erase me if you have. <clears throat> um, but when I was at Live Aid in London in 1985, and between acts, they were playing back the feed from America, what was going on in Philadelphia. It would be all kinds of people, including Madonna and Hollow Notes and all these people. But the, the group, the band, the artists that got the people at Wembley Stadium, up on their feet, and dancing in the aisles was the Beach Boys. Wow. There's something about that music. It's youthful. That, I think that's the, the quality about it that I yeah. love. It. There's an innocence about it, despite all the dark stories behind it. That's right. It's celebratory and joyful, but, you know, it's funny. My favorite Beach Boys songs are songs that are far more somber, like In My Room and mm -hmm. um, and uh, sail on sailor. There's something that's there's a sadness in those. And I listen. I love I get around and all those songs. Those are great. But to me, when I was a kid, those were big. And as I got older, they sounded like kiddie songs to me. Even though I know they're not. But to yeah. me, as I as I matured and got into way more important music like Kiss. <laughs> Oh, oh, you took me by surprise there. <laughs> I knew I would, buddy. But anyway, yes. Oh, as I matured, um, I, I felt that music yes. was a little bit behind me. But then I discovered As you began more. to party all night, <laughs> yes. And Paul well, you know what? Everything. I'm 100% with you. My favorite Beach Boys song is a song called Till I Die, which is, um, if you've never heard it, it's on Surf's Up. Which, which is, an, uh, the album title is a misnomer. It, this album doesn't really have much to do with surfing. It's not an old-fashioned Beach Boys album mm. at all. But it's a, it's a compilation of gorgeous songs by um, many of the different uh, members of the band. Okay, cool. And um, the song Till I Die, 
uh, is sort of a coda to the record, and it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Deep cuts. That's fantastic. Very good. Uh, Dennis goes on to say, you have to give people what they want. If you make a record in the studio, you can you have the liberty of using horns and different things, and mm. when you go on stage and you only have the basic five guys, you're gonna you're actually, I think, ripping off the people, and I think that you should come as close as possible to reproducing the record. Must be very expensive to tour that way, though. It's crazy. It's insanity. We're traveling with 50-some-odd people. We have to charter two jets and all that, you know, mm-hmm. four or five semi-trucks. But it's it's fun to do that. On stage, I don't think that a group should... I think a group should go to, no matter what it takes, to make it the finest possible show. I think that's very important. I think the most important thing is your live performance. And they certainly did just that with those annual tours. Still to come on Famous Lost Words, more with the Beach Boys and Eric Clapton on being held up as a guitar god and his thoughts on what went wrong with Cream. Welcome back to FLW. I'm CW with TJ. <laughs> we, are, we are deep in uh, Beach Boys land here from 1976. Okay, so I'm going to have to do a translation for the FLW impaired. <laughs> FLW stands for Famous Lost Words. Famous Lost Words yeah. is a collection of classic interviews that have not been heard forever that we found in our archives, hence, hence the, the lost portion of that uh, title. Uh, CW is Christopher Ward of much music fame, also uh, songwriter extraordinaire. Uh, TJ, that's me. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm a music geek and the archivist on the show. And as Christopher puts down his tea, um, we are going to proceed with more (laughs) of the Beach Boys. Talking with Dennis Wilson from 1976, and he talks about recording solo. Carl and I build studios. Matter of fact, Brother Studios were the last Beach Boys album. Most Mm -hmm. of the albums have been made through the years were built by us but the last studios uh, a venture Carl and I got into and through building a studio you you get involved in what the bass is going to sound like at different levels and what kind of room sound and on and on and on mm-hmm. before I got done I had three or four tracks and Karen my wife said uh, you got to make an album you know and then James Garcia came over and between the two of them they tied me down and forced me into this project. No, I've come up with an album, and uh, I'm already halfway through another one. And I have plans of already recording live albums. And so I'm all I do is record when I'm home. That's all I want to do. Hmm. So I actually love to do. It must be a, a very time-consuming to put down your own album and at the same time continue to work with a group. The album took me a year and a half. But the Beach Boys, it's a, I own the studio, so that's where instead of I book it out to a lot of people, I can have as much time as I want. And so right. the Beach Boys either work mornings or let's say 12 noon to 5 or 6, right? So all the other time is mine. Dennis is great in these clips. You know, he refers to working with his brother Carl. And once again, if you are a real fan, tune into episode six where we do that, have that conversation between you, Christopher, and Carl Wilson. He's so smart, thoughtful. It's just great. Dennis elaborates on working on his own versus being part of the group. Actually, the, the, 
it's not won't be in the success of the album if it makes number one or number two or if people think it's a poo-poo. Hmm. Uh, it's in completing that project. I found that I, for the first time in my life, I've actually done something alone, away from the other guys, because within a group you can lean against each other. Or you have, you know, hmm. if you fail, you fail together. And some, somehow, when you feel a part of a unit, when you fail or a success, there's buffers there. But alone, it's you feel a little vulnerable. I am. I hope the album is successful very much, but at the same time, it already is because I've done something, and it does give me a sense of uh, accomplishment to do that. Oh, you know, we've heard that before, how important it is for members of big groups to impart on their own journey every once in a while just to satisfy their own artistic and emotional needs. There you go, the Beach Boys on Famous Lost Words. That's wonderful tonight. Wonderful song, Eric Clapton from 1977. Christopher? One of the most gifted and original musicians ever to pick up an electric guitar, Eric Clapton, is not so sure about his abilities as a singer and a songwriter, things that many would say he's done pretty well at. (laughs) But humility is a rare and welcome trait in a man who's the only three-time inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Yardbirds, Cream, and also as a solo artist. He's the winner of 18 Grammy Awards and was named the number two greatest guitar player of all time by Rolling Stone. Tom, go ahead with number one. Hmm. Tiny Tim. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. That he's the number one greatest ukulele player of all time. Um, I'm gonna guess I'm gonna guess maybe Jimi Hendrix has number one guitar. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Interesting when, when Hendrix came along, how fascinated Clapton was by him, and they That's did right. jam together. Here's what Eric thinks about the various hats that he wears. Oh, yeah, and he's also embarrassed by all the praise and acclaim. Yeah, well, I still am, because uh, I think just playing the guitar isn't enough. You know, I really don't think it is. It's you like, mean people think you're wrong. <laughs> well, you know, it's not enough somehow. If I was a great songwriter, if I was a great singer, mm. then I wouldn't be, you know, so humble about it. I wouldn't be shy, you know. And until I am either a great songwriter or a great singer, then I shall carry on, you know, being embarrassed when people say that, you know, give me all that sort of praise stuff. Clapton is God button. Yeah, well, it's silly. It really is, you know. And it's unfounded, Mm. you know. Mm. Because I really haven't even started to work it out yet. Now, here is what uh, Eric felt about Cream in retrospect. Cream I felt sort of disoriented about, you know, disorientated about at the time I was doing it. It was the trouble, you know, I just didn't sort of coincide with the way I felt about it, you know, the way I felt it should be. Mm. I mean, it was very strange. Mm. I like, still like a lot of the records we made, but um, there was something wrong somewhere, mm. you know, there was a weakness. So Cream only lasted three years, and despite their talent, they never quite delivered on their immense promise. And in fact, it is said that as soon as Clapton heard the first album by the band, Music from Big Pink, that's when he decided to quit and pursue a completely different musical direction. That is interesting. I think so many people were influenced by that by that record, Music from Big Pink, but right. I wouldn't have called that one. Yeah, cool. We still have a great conversation with Dave Stewart of Eurythmics on the way, but first we continue with Eric Clapton as he talks about that infernal racket known as Led Zeppelin. Just a reminder to get caught up with past episodes of our show. 
Are you a fan of The Who? Check out episodes 105 and 314. How about a big fan of the 80s? Episode 302 is dedicated to that decade. We also have Bob Dylan, Taylor Swift, Bon Jovi, Split Ends, Iron Maiden, Lou Reed, who inexplicably is in a good mood during that interview, and many, many more. Review and rate the episodes and tell your friends. Now, back to our chat with Eric Clapton from the late 60s. Christopher, what's Eric talking about now? He has some really interesting thoughts on Led Zeppelin. I've heard their records and I saw him play uh, in Milwaukee. We were doing the same gig, a festival there. And it was uh, very loud. You know, I thought it was unnecessarily loud. Mm. I liked some of it. I really did like some of it. But a lot of it was just too much. You know, just, mm. They just overemphasized at whatever point they were making. Oh, that's funny. That's the era when the sound systems started to get very big and very loud. And Clapton says that at one point when he was with Cream, one of the problems is that the members of the band never really listened to each other playing. And at one point, Clapton stops playing his guitar during a concert and the other guys don't even notice. Like it's just a cacophony (laughs) of sound. They're only listening to themselves. And he believes that that was one of the problems with being in that band. So, so much promise. One of the very first supergroups yeah. in rock history, and it didn't quite gel the way everyone hoped. And also, by the way, he read a horrible review by John Landau in Rolling Stone, a critic and a, and a magazine that he respected, and it just talked about how Eric Clapton is now a walking blues guitar cliché. Wow. And that hurt him very much, and that was one of the, another reason why he got out. Yeah, I mean, the whole loudness on stage thing, and I remember seeing Led Zeppelin play at the O'Keefe Center in Toronto. Right. And uh, it was the loudest, wildest thing I'd ever heard, um, and maybe still is to this day. And yeah, volume was kind of the point in some yeah. respects, right? But yeah. the monitoring in those days, the monitor speakers that they had to rely upon to hear what they were doing were really awful. They were just these tiny little speakers. Right. And, you know, as you say, they had the monster sound system. So it's no surprise that nobody could hear what anybody else was doing. What's surprising is that singers didn't burn themselves out on a nightly basis. Yeah, yeah. Here's Eric Clapton's reaction to hearing Dwayne Allman. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, the first time I remember hearing him was on the Wilson Pickett. Hey Jude. Hey Jude, yeah. Yeah. Scared the pants off me, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's Layla, Derek and the Dominoes from 1971, and Dwayne Allman, who's playing that riff. That guy scared a lot of people with his talent, and he died in 1971, Christopher, at the age of 24. Oh, boy. And did his death ever rock? his brother, uh, Greg, who wrote considerably about that experience in his, uh, in his autobiography a few years before he died. The loss of Dwayne Allman affected a lot of people terribly, but none more than Greg Allman. Well, this is a topic that I didn't think we'd be getting to in this interview, but now it's time for Eric's take on the Paul is dead rumor. I, I can't think that, you know. I think that... Uh if there was anything like, if there was any kind of coincidental connection between any of these things, which it sounds as though there is, you know, I must admit I'm as convinced as anybody could be. But it, it, and as I said before, I don't think it will be perpetrated by John, least of all 
because he's the closest person to Paul, and, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the pair of them are, yeah, you know, they're very tight. They're tighter than anybody. But you haven't seen him in six months, then. Except the photographs, and he just looked as though he'd put on a little weight, but nothing, you know, nothing extraordinary about it. Wow, I never thought I'd hear <laughs> another rock star actually entertaining the thought that yeah. the, the Paul McCartney is dead rumors were legitimate. Like he's reading into these it's clues. Bizarre. It is. That's one of the reasons why I included this clip because I went, what? He actually thinks it might be true. So that tells you how deep <laughs> these rumors were running. So, you know, what, what year would this have been? This would have been like 69 around the time of Abbey Road, right? So anyway, just... Uh, that's uh, that's just incredible to me. Utterly bizarre. Yeah. Okay. So Christopher, let's talk about this very this very last clip. This is very unusual, and and it's funny because I, all I did was type in you know in my database Eric Clapton, and I found this clip of Pete Townsend in a completely totally different uh, interview um, from about 1973 because they worked together on something called Eric Clapton's uh, The Rainbow Concert. So that's where this comes from. So it's Pete Townsend talking about Eric. I think people like Eric, and I've, I've heard a lot of people say the same thing about Stevie Wonder, uh, maybe, even, maybe even Jimi Hendrix, they have a certain sort of charisma about them which affects other musicians very deeply and makes other musicians feel, I don't know, so, somehow it sounds a bit like a platitude, but sort of uh, united in, in a, a greater cause. I mean, you can pick up on... I mean, I don't pick up and play a guitar uh, because I believe in guitar that much or because I'm a soulful musician. I mean, my reasons are usually bounced off other reasons, like I write or I'm part of The Who or, you know, it's ten years ago since I first decided to do what I do. I just can't remember why I first picked up the guitar. But uh, Eric plays for old-fashioned reasons. He plays because music is his life and guitar is his life. And uh, much the same as somebody... I mean, there is no other Eric Clapton, obviously, but uh, he, uh, he does... He does have a very simple approach, I suppose that's what it is, is that if you look at somebody like The Who, it's fantastically complicated, uh, the way we go about things. There are four very strong individuals involved, and every step is a complicated one. Every step is, is a cooperative decision, and, and very heavy management involvement, and very creative sort of decisions made all the way down the line, even from contract structure right the way down to sort of chord structure. And Eric's life seems to be much simpler. It's got to do with playing the guitar, you know, and that seems to be it. And when you're sort of thrown in with somebody like this, and, and, some, and particularly somebody that you respect, you tend to sort of adopt their outlook on music, and it leaks in and it sort of becomes very infectious. And I think everybody that played on that gig... Uh, at the rainbow felt this sort of part of Eric leak in you know everybody felt this sort of like simple approach that it was really just the music that counted wow isn't that interesting Pete Townsend sounds a wee bit jealous of Eric Clapton in that clip 
But it also sounds like he's taking a bit of a swipe at Eric. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. I don't know. See, I didn't hear that. It sounded more admiring to me. But, yeah. you know, Pete Townsend is a nuanced character. So let's face it, um, there's probably multiple layers of meanings in everything he says. There we go. Eric Clapton on Famous Lost Words. That's your rhythmics from 1985 and Would I Lie to You. That's a great song. Love that song. Tom, Dave Stewart of Eurythmics fame and not the former Blue Jays pitcher <laughs> gets around. When I asked him why so many stars wanted to work with him, he said it's because of his curveball. No, just kidding. He said it's because he has fun he has fun while working and that people want to be around that kind of energy. Yep. These people, by the way, include the likes of Bon Jovi, Celine Dion, no doubt, Tom Petty, Mick Jagger although that was a truly forgettable piece of work. Um, <laughs> he will always be best known as the musical partner of Annie Lennox in Eurythmics, with yeah. whom he had an amazing run of success in the 1990s. In this interview, it's absolutely charming to hear how he speaks about his one-time partner, first romantic partner, and then musical. Yeah, and he really does it on a number of occasions in these clips. Like, almost in every clip, he talks about, oh, yeah, Annie and I got together last week. Oh, yeah, we're going to be spending Christmas with each other. Like, it's, and they're not together, right? Like, Dave's married. Um, you know, Annie has her own life, but, but they are very close. It it's actually comes up so much in this, it's a little bit surprising. It is, but lovely. It's charming, I find. Yes. Yeah. Dave talks about his longstanding relationship with Annie Lennox. We started off being a couple that lived together and didn't write any songs together for about four years. And then we broke up and wrote 150 songs about breaking up. So <laughs> um, it's like we already got over the worst bit. And, you know, so we're friends really f forever, really. And, um, you know, we've been uh, doing so many things together. You know, we made nine albums in nine years. I mean, most albums, bands make an album every one to three years, mm -hmm. you know. And... Um, so when we stopped in 1990 for a break, it was because we both had to have, you know, families or do something, you know, that isn't a Eurythmics life. And then, it's funny enough, because our new single's called I've Got a Life. <laughs> That's probably because we spent the next 10 years getting one. Great line about being a couple that split up and then for the next few years, creating a whole body of work about splitting up. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Still to come, Dave Stewart remembers some pretty incredible career highlights with Annie Lennox and talks about what it was like working with the legendary, talented, and very picky Aretha Franklin. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we continue with our chat with Dave Stewart of Eurythmics from 2005. The interviewer is the excellent broadcaster May Potts. Now, because you have gone away and, and worked on a number of solo things, each of you, when you've come back together, how have you noticed that the working relationship has changed? Uh, it hadn't at all, really. I mean, Annie was staying with me for a holiday about nine weeks ago at my house in Los Angeles with my wife and kids. And, um, you know, we had been there for been about five days. And I just sort of built a studio in Hollywood Boulevard with Glenn Ballard, you know, we're sort of partners in producing and writing things and and um i said do, I need, do you want to see it she said yeah so we went down there and it's all like a bit like the john lennon white room you know kind of feeling with tall ceilings right. nice light coming in the windows 
and within 45 minutes later we'd written I've Got a Life, which is the new single. And um, it just happened just like the old days when, you know, we'd start playing a little bit, you know, piano and guitar, and then all of a sudden a song just comes tumbling out. And then when we suddenly wrote this track, you know, we went in the studio the next day and wrote another one and then another one, and we actually wrote about four in a row. And then we sort of explained what had happened to the record company and our managers, and I said, well, why don't we put them top and tail on the a new Ultimate Collection? Wow. Why is it so heartwarming that they're still friends after all they've been through? That's great. Because it's so unusual, right? Yes, that's right. Let's title this next piece, Holidaying with Annie. We've always been seeing each other, you know, like mm-hmm. our kids are friends and every other weekend and when Annie came to stay with us on holiday, what she was just staying with us for a holiday. Oh. Um, so, you know, but when we wrote these songs, it was suddenly, oh, hang on, um, we should, uh, you know, do something with them. And this seemed the obvious route. Now, does this mean that there's possibly an album in the works or, you know, are you considering working together even more in the near future? Uh, well, I think, you know, Annie and I are the kind of couple duo that, you know, when we're 65 years old, we might be doing a concert with an orchestra in a, uh, you know, an opera house or the Albert Hall or the Montreal Opera House or <laughs> whatever there is. Uh, you know, and nobody would think that was unusual. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. You know, uh, back in about, I think it was 90 or 91, you guys had a Greatest Hits package come out, and I can't remember whether it was because of that package or what the case was, but I, you were here in Toronto with Annie as your rhythmics, and you did a press conference. And I was there, and I remember asking whether um, that this Greatest Hits package perhaps signified the closing of a, a chapter in your musical careers, and Annie responded by saying yes. Do you have any regrets that you did actually move away at that time, or, or do you still think it was, a, it was a good idea? No, it was a great idea. You know, we both have had children, and um, you know, we've both done various other things that we really enjoy and are proud of. I decided to become a photographer for years, which I did, and then I went and did movie scores, and then I, um, you know, wrote songs with lots of other people, which was great fun, and um, and I made records and made films and all sorts of things, you know, that I'd always been wanting to do and never had time because we were constantly touring and in the studio. Sadly, the Opera House shows at age 65 never did come to pass. But, you know, in the past, there were so many career highlights, and here's Dave Stewart talking about that. Well, there's lots of memories. I remember, like, you know, when we'd written the album Touch, and then we went off and tour again, and we'd written this great song called Here Comes the Rain Again, and we arrived in, I think it was New Zealand, right, totally disorientated, and playing at a festival, 60,000 people, and we got on stage, and just as I hit the first chord of it, this massive lightning, but when and all of the uh, rain started pouring down, and it was just such a bizarre thing. Um, you know, there's different memories and moments with songs. I remember Annie and I playing on the Grammy Sweet Dreams, and Annie, we hid the whole time during rehearsals because Annie was getting made up as a man, you know, with sideburns and black grease back hair, and bursting out on the stage and doing that in front of an audience with their jaw on the ground. That was 
<laughs> you know, lots of things. I remember that. <laughs> Christopher, do you remember the Grammy moment he just described when Annie came out dressed as Elvis? Uh-huh. It's such a memorable moment. Yeah. And in 2015, she just about burned down the stage when she duetted with Hosier on Take Me to Church, which was a big song that year. What a performer. And she had that androgynous look, which has always been very cool and very rock and roll. She is a star. Mm -hmm. So here, Dave talks about working with Aretha Franklin. It was scary and, uh, you know, a thrill. And we had to fly to Detroit. And we were in the studio and Aretha came in and she was so sweet. She had made all these chicken wings and, you know, I brought some of her friends and some of her family were there and we were all crammed into this little room. And then <laughs> then she sort of started saying about the lyrics, like she saw Annie arrive with the cropped hair and everything. And she was like, uh, what do you mean exactly? We're ringing on our own bell. <laughs> you know, and uh, anyway, when she sort of, heard Annie start to sing because I think she was a bit this girl looks very strange white skinny girl from Scotland and when she opened her mouth you saw Aretha sort of physically sort of put her shoulders back and go okay <laughs> here we go and like they all started singing around the same mic and it was great now what he doesn't tell you here Tom is that the original video shoot was cancelled um, because Aretha was agoraphobic and he told me about that and he didn't sound very happy about it because they had a whole concept they had an entire set built and everything in London and it never got used you know but it was still a great song yeah it was a great song and it is funny because Aretha was very well known for her fear of flying and also for her she was kind of known for her demands and so I guess that wasn't as widespread as we think it was because they didn't know that she often canceled things. They didn't know that she would cancel things at the drop of a hat. In the last 20 years of her life, she canceled a lot of concerts. Did you see her, Tom? Yes, I saw her in Toronto, and I would guess it would have been the late 90s, very early 2000s. It couldn't have been much more than 20 years ago, so... I'm guessing it was around that, that period, and she was very good. Um, I kind of wish it would have been more of a soul show um, because that's you know the era of her that I like the most. Um, but, but it was still good, and every once in a while, she would rip into something, and it, you know all the hairs on your arm and, and neck would just, would just rise to attention like immediately well, when yeah. she would hit a note yeah. or do a particular riff on a song and you could feel her brilliance and you could hear it and it just went right through you and then there were just some times when it just kind of felt a little bit too Vegasy. Uh, eh, don't agree okay. I saw this probably the same show it was at Roy Thompson Hall yes and um, she was the artist that I thought I will never see her because she won't tour and then I bought tickets anyway <laughs> sure enough <laughs> She showed up yes. and she opened. I don't know if you remember, she opened with Chain of Fools. I mean, my hair stood up and never went back down again for the duration wow. of that show. It, yeah. it was mind-boggling to me. I had never heard anyone sing like that live. And I thought, wow, she's more than still got it. Yeah. She is truly the queen of soul. Yeah, for sure. And although I didn't love that show as much as you did, I'm still thrilled to have had the opportunity to see her live and she remains perhaps my favorite singer ever. Okay, back to the Dave Stewart interview. We finish off with a discussion 
about the chemistry between Dave and Annie. You know, and I and I got to admit, and I'm a big fan as well of, um, in addition to you, but in your solo work, but to also of Annie's, and I, you know, got her solo discs, and and I've seen her. She was here in Toronto a few years ago, and I went to see her yeah. perform. But honestly, when the two of you get together, you have. Um, there, honestly, Dave, I think you bring out something different in Annie's singing. Yeah, I think you'll hear that on the single I've Got a Life and on the tracks on the album. It's um, it's a funny phenomenon, you know, it's like Jagger Richards or whatever when two people get together. And um, I think there's a strength in Annie's voice when I'm with her because maybe the two of us together, the sum of the parts are larger than the whole, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also, it's the way I produce it and mix the record often and uh, the sound of the microphone and the you know compressor and everything but basically it's a strong it's a very strong sounding voice you know yes there's definitely strength there um are you guys at all planning on doing any dates together in support of this or any touring well we haven't sat because it was only about eight weeks ago and since then she went back to england i've been here and we've been doing all this various stuff connected with releasing it. We haven't sat down with our manager yet and talked about, well, you know, everybody's schedules. And But we have been getting a lot of promoters and agents, obviously, uh, contacting us. Oh, I'd love that. Come on, you guys. <laughs> We'd love to see you out together again performing. I would think that would be such a thrill for many of us fans. Oh, thanks so much. I guess the other thing with touring, and you've mentioned that you have you know, young children, is that you, know, you have to take that into consideration when you now want to head on to the road is the family life situation as well, of course. Yeah, well, they can take them with you and they love it. Yeah, they like the road life. <laughs> oh, good, yeah. How about Christmas? Are you guys, I guess, planning on staying stationary for Christmas? Uh, I think Annie's coming to visit us in Los Angeles again. There you go. They're going to spend Christmas together. I wonder if they remained as close as they were from the time of that interview 15 years ago. That's Dave Stewart of Eurythmics on Famous Lost Words. That's a wrap for this week. Our show is created by Tom Jokic and produced by Adam Karsh. Executive producer, Rob Farina. I'm Christopher Ward. Hope you'll join us next week for Famous Lost Words. Famous Lost Words.